This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 10th of April 2021 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up in the next half an hour... We learned this week of another legacy of the recently outgone administration of former US President Benito Cartman. We'll look back at the last seven days of news and we'll flick through the day's papers before joining our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. Back at work this week, several people asked, Did you see the blossom? That's what happens when everything is closed. I wonder if you'll take notice of such pleasures when the pubs are open again. But which pub to go to? Matthew Curtis, the author of An Opinionated Guide to London Pubs, will help us make that decision. And we'll also hear from the man they call the Jane Austen of Sri Lanka, the country's best-selling author, Ashok Ferre. All of that coming up on Monocle on Saturday. First, though, here are the headlines. U.S. and Iranian officials clashed on Friday over what sanctions the United States should lift to resume compliance with the 2015 nuclear deal, with Washington predicting an impasse if Tehran sticks to a demand that all sanctions since 2017 be removed. Some diplomats hope agreement can be reached before Iran's June 18th presidential election, or else talks risk being pushed back until later in the year. La Sufria volcano on the eastern Caribbean island of St Vincent erupted on Friday after decades of inactivity, sending dark plumes of ash and smoke billowing into the sky and forcing thousands from surrounding villages to evacuate. St Vincent and the Grenadines, which has a population of over just 100,000, has not experienced volcanic activity since 1979, when an eruption created approximately $100 million in damages. An eruption by La Sufria in 1902 killed more than 1,000 people. The name means sulphur outlet in French. Pro-British loyalist militants in Northern Ireland said on Friday there'd been a spectacular collective failure to understand their anger over Brexit and other issues, as there was some respite in street clashes following a week of riots. A number of loyalist protests planned for Friday night were postponed in what posters put up in pro-British areas said was a mark of respect for Queen Elizabeth and the royal family following the death of her husband, Prince Philip. The late Prince Philip maintained a respectful 50-year relationship with an indigenous group in the island nation of Vanuatu that venerated him based on their shared respect for tradition, in contrast to his history of racially insensitive remarks. The veneration of Philip, who died on Friday at the age of 99 by people on Tanna Island in Vanuatu, was one of the more curious aspects of the life of the late husband to the British Queen Elizabeth II. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Well now, let's have a look through this morning's newspapers and I'm joined today by a new contributor. It is Yuan Ren, who's a journalist and former editor at Time Out Beijing. Yuan, welcome to Monocle 24. Thank you for having me. Uh, Let's pick up on that Prince Philip story because obviously it's all over every single front page here in Britain. But I wonder how it's been covered further afield. Um, I think around the world, different countries pay tribute um, from you know Australia to China, uh, that's basically the the, the front page news. Um, 
I mean, of course, he traveled everywhere uh, in his uh, almost eight, dec- eight decades uh, alongside the Queen. So in China, for example, this morning, they've got pictures of the, the very famous picture of him and the Queen uh, on the Great Wall of China. Um, so, I mean, in the British media, obviously, his face, his, the, the, the quotes from the Queen, that his, you know, beloved um, beloved husband, that's kind of the image of, of Prince Philip is the one that's going out um, on front pages this morning. Mm-hmm. But there's also lots of um, kind of look at his, as you would probably, I, I'm, I'm surprised there wasn't actually more. So from the US side, there has been some look at the kind of the gaffes and him as a quirky character um, and also kind of his turbulent life as a child, um, which a lot of us didn't know about. Mm, mm. Unless we've watched The Crown, <laughs> um, yes, which I haven't. <laughs> uh, let's let's, um, uh, let's let's zone in perhaps on uh, ABC. Um, so um, he he made some remark about th- <laughs> throwing spears, didn't he? Say, do you still throw spears at each other when he was in Australia? Yes, he also said something. He looked at some of the artwork and said, "Oh, this looks like something you know <laughs> that a child made <laughs> in nursery," um, which today would be outrageous. You know, you're looking at sort of indigenous art, um, a proud <laughs> art of a whole nation, and he's saying, "Oh, well, my granddaughter could have made this." Um, so yeah, I mean that that's just one among many cultural gaffes that I think if it was today and if it wasn't Prince um, Philip would be completely outrageous. Uh, in this kind of current woke world. I mean, when he went to China, he said something like, uh, well, I can quote you, he said, if you stay here much longer to, to a bunch of British students studying out there, you'll be all slitty-eyed, which, you know, right now I'm not even comfortable saying the word slitty-eyed. But, yeah. Um, yeah. but I, think, I think the thing is, he's very endearing. He's obviously from a completely different age. Um, and there's something very sort of embarrassing uncle about him and very kind of British about all of that. That he can get away with and you know it's as we've heard from Meghan and Harry it's a difficult life going around all these countries that, and just being expected to be perfect all the time so um, that's possibly one way that he uh, he lightened the mood and I, I suspect it would lighten the mood when a really awkward joke like that is made. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, uh, understandably, as as we say, dominating front pages a, a, across the world, uh, and I think eight days of mourning uh, has been announced here in Britain. Uh, let's yeah. move on and have a look at the New York Times because they've got a story, a worrying story about uh, deliveries of a vaccine falling by eighty six percent. Yeah, so I mean, it, it is really worrying because the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, which kind of, which was a bit bit of a latecomer to winning um, the federal approval for the emergency use after Pfizer and Moderna, um, it was really welcomed because it's one shot and it's thought that it could be used um, on kind of mass vaccination sites for kind of the homeless and for students. You know, all you have to do uh, is turn up once, get it done, and that's it. And also. The great thing about Johnson Johnson is that um, it doesn't need all of the complicated uh, storage procedures. So it can be stored at room temperature. And I think it's then okay for three months, but quite a significant period of time. So the idea is that, you know, for people who are possibly going to turn up for a second dose, that that was going to um, solve a lot of those issues. But the problem is that in Baltimore, this plant, which still hasn't had... um, certification that was they were putting a lot of onus on that um to provide uh 
provide the initial the, the Johnson and Johnson jabs. Um, and so this 86% fall is a real dent to um, the effort, particularly as, um, you know, this fight, the kind of rise, there's a resurgence almost in this in cases and it's in five states so there are states that are really worried and we're relying on it mm. to come absolutely um, uh yeah yeah um let's um let's finally uh, go to egypt and have a look at this wonderful very exciting new find of an ancient royal city Yes, so it's meant to be the biggest thing. So Tutankhamun's uh, tomb was found. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's beautiful. If you look at kind of, it looks almost like there's not, there, there aren't that many images released yet, but you can see these walls, kind of intact walls and kitchens that they were supposed to be. And it's just one area. The picture is very um, evocative because it's it's so intact. The walls are high. Um, they found um, all lots of like ornaments. Um, and it's meant to be, uh, apparently it was some, a site that nobody really took any notice of. And the archaeologists have said that they'd walk around and kind of almost dismiss it. But they managed to dig the whole thing up and found these beautiful like metal ornaments, um, like scriabs, that those <laughs> those beetles that you see in you know, the mummy films. Um, mm, scar beetles. Big, yeah. Scar beetles, sorry. Um, but, you know, that they're, they're really kind of symbol of kind of ancient Egypt. You see them in the mummy films um, and they make all sorts of ornaments out of them. So there's this beautiful kind of um, almost sort of like decayed um, bronze uh, ornament with the scarab and then sort of pharaohs and the assistants um, on the bottom, sort of a triangle of four different parts making up this beautiful, um, beautiful ornament. Mm. So... Yes, it's, yeah. Full details there in the Telegraph. And of course, it is also covered in a number of other organs. Uh, Yuan, thanks very much for, for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. That was Yuan Ren, and this is Monocle 24. Now, let's round up the things we learned this week. Here's Monocle's Andrew Muller. We learned this week of another legacy of the recently outgone administration of former US President Benito Cartman. We're going to need some subtly evocative Italian background music. Subtly evocative? Look, forget it, whatever. Adam Curtis never has this trouble. Anyway, we learned that, with the rigorous attention to detail for which the 45th president was renowned, US Treasury sanctions imposed on Venezuela's state oil company shortly before Trump left office had accidentally blacklisted one Alessandro Bazzoni, the proprietor of the Dolce Gusto restaurant in Verona. It's on Via Sotomonte, three and a half stars from 328 reviews on TripAdvisor. Happy to help. We learned, specifically the hapless pizza flinger in question learned when he attempted to operate his current account, that the United States had frozen the assets of the wrong Alessandro Bazzoni, possibly because they'd gotten crude oil confused with olive oil. Who knows? We did attempt to learn yet more and contacted Mr Bazzoni for clarification. A penne for your thoughts, we said, but he hung up on us. Happens pretty frequently, in fairness. Come on. Just... Get on with it. We are obliged at this point to offer a right of reply to Monocle's Italy desk chief, Chiara Ramella. <sighs> Gesù santo, ma davvero? Non ci posso credere. Maybe copy that one to the file? It seems reasonably likely to come up again. Happy days are here again. The skies above are clear again. We also 
also learned this week that, contrary to what you might well have heard on the actual news or read in reports by various human rights NGOs and similar troublemakers regarding China's oppression of its Uyghur minority, it's all just dandy in Xinjiang, the province in which the Uyghurs live. We learned this from the Chinese Communist Party, and would they lie to us? Would they? About a thing like this. <coughs> We learned that Chinese embassies around the world have taken to inviting groups of local hacks to a screening of a series of completely convincing and not remotely weird or creepy videos entitled Xinjiang is a Wonderful Land. From those mini-movies, which in no way resemble the pre-arrival film that might be screened on Air Dystopia, we learned that everybody in Xinjiang is completely happy about absolutely everything. This is a land of happiness where people's well-being is constantly improved. So that's nice. Reassured further by that lulling background music, we also learned an interesting new simile for communal cohesion. All ethnic customs and traditions are duly respected. In Xinjiang today, people from various ethnic groups live in concord, work in solidarity, and develop in harmony. Bending together closely like the seeds of a pomegranate. Like the seeds of a pomegranate. Liquid copywriting right there, lads. <coughs> Elsewhere, we learned of Jay-Z's hundredth problem. It is a mosque in Lamu, Kenya, which has taken umbrage with America's 49th president, he'll be just after Eric Trump and just before the invasion by Cuba, over a T-shirt. Jay-Z was photographed leaving a pizzeria, not the one in Verona we met earlier, unfortunately, as it would have lent this week's monologue a cohesion of which, frankly, it shows no sign so far, wearing a garment featuring an image of Lamu's Riata Mosque, which, we learned, is an indisputably handsome building, if they don't mind us saying so, and it appears they might, because... We learned that the mosque's custodians were not flattered by the big pimpin' hitmaker's homage and had expressed their vexation in a letter to the T-shirt's designer. This would be Kenyan couturier Zedekiah Lukoye, a.k.a. Zeddy Loki. When we learned this, we were pretty excited, as volleys of fire and brimstone from the religiously aggrieved are always good fun in these monologues. We get Fernando or Carlotta to read bits of them out like they're the dumbest thing they've ever heard. Seriously, check out the older episodes. It's always a total hoot. <sighs> you can't get the staff. But we learned upon reading the letter from Riyadh Mosque, Secretary General Abu Bakr Badawi, that he'd made his point with courtesy and humility, saying he appreciated Zedi Loki's promotion of Lamu, but would also appreciate his place of worship not featuring on nightclub apparel. While we tend, if we're honest, towards the view that maybe the Riyadh Mosque's management could afford to lighten up a bit, we're big fans of reasonableness, if that is indeed a word. Plus, along with the offending T-shirt, Jay-Z was wearing shorts, and he's 51 years old. So we're ruling in favour of the mosque. And... Rolling, rolling, rolling. We learned of the lengths to which quarantine can drive a man. 
An Australian chap by the name of David Marriott recently returned after a necessary trip overseas and confined to a Brisbane hotel room for the statutory two weeks of isolation, assembled a sort of Wild West universe from the brown paper bags in which his rations were delivered. He built himself a brown paper horse, dressed himself in a brown paper waistcoat and brown paper chaps, and topped the look off with a brown paper hat. You know that clip of anticipatory dismay we premiered on Monday? Knew it would come in handy. No, don't. No, no, no. Please don't. Please don't. Oh, God, Andrew, no. Yes, local law enforcement now wants a word with this brown paper cowboy about... (laughs) Rustling. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. It's time to hear from our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, with his weekend column. On Monday, England takes another step out of lockdown that will include non-essential shops being allowed to open, as well as restaurants and bars allowed to serve food and drinks, if al fresco. In London, these establishments have been closed since December. This week, as you've looked through store and pub windows, there's been a small army of people polishing brass, replacing old winter stock for summer looks, painting walls, finally taking down their Christmas decorations and catching up over a cigarette with colleagues who they've not seen for weeks. It's only a modest leap, but it feels like the moment before a party begins. Who will blow up the balloons, please? Once a week at 8am, I see Trini. She is a woman of endless patience and such calmness when faced with stupidity and people crucifying her culture that she should be rewarded with a glistening medal. Trini is my Spanish teacher. Now, you remember the imperative, she'll say, then watch as the lights fade all around and a look of trepidation creeps across my face. This week she'd found something that simply explains subject and object pronouns and the related syntax in Spanish sentences. I read it. It might as well have been the user's manual for the Hadron Collider. But I really like her unswerving confidence that something is getting through. If you go madly freestyle, she stays silent, but gets a look that stops you in your tracks and forces you to retrace the stumbling path of your sentence until you see the dead body of an error that you try to nonchalantly jump over. At least she knows she has job security. This is a mission that will never end. Hairdressers also open on Monday, but most are booked out for weeks and my slowness on the speed dial means I will have to wait another two weeks to see my lock lopper. Now, I could be disloyal, but I succumbed to tonsorial temptation when I found myself in the same unshorn state after the last lockdown eased and it all went horribly wrong. The next day, looking very neat, I bumped into Jackson, my hairdresser, on his way into work. It's hard to cover up such haircut unfaithfulness, unless you quite literally cover it up with a hat. So for now, I shall look like a cross between a Saluki hound and a clump of washed-up seaweed and be proud that I've done the right thing. But if you do hear about any spare appointments... 
friend's dog has died, but it had a good life and a name that caused much entertainment. He called the dog Taxi, which meant that whenever he shouted out its name, he risked London cab drivers screeching to a halt next to him. I heard another good one in the park this week, spuds, as in potatoes. And in the past, I've met a bucket, an elbow, and a pair of Pomeranians called Dolce and Gabbana. All you'll concur, potential head-turners if hollered in the right way. So far, Macy the Fox Terrier has declined the offer of being renamed Fire or Thief. Last Sunday, the spring sun shone, and it felt as though every tree had selected the exact same moment to put on a lavish display of blossom in bubblegum pinks and brittle whites. Boughs bent with boastful blooms, I watched as people waited for their turn to stand under various particularly grand displays to have their pictures taken. Every now and then, a tease of wind would dislodge a confetti shake of petals. Nature had demanded that people pay witness to its beauty, and young and old, they came as supplicants. Who needs Kyoto? Back at work this week, several people asked, did you see the blossom? That's what happens when everything is closed. I wonder if we will take notice of such pleasures when the pubs are open again. Thanks very much to Andrew Tuck. And we'll be hearing how to choose just which pub to drink in a little later on in the programme. Now, I want to introduce you to my friend Ashok Ferry. He's Sri Lanka's best-selling author. He read Pure Maths at Oxford. He was a builder in London before becoming a writer. He lives in Colombo and he's on the line now. Hello to you, Ashok. Hello, Georgina. Lovely to, lovely to say hello, meet you on, on the line. Um, Ashok, they call you the Jane Austen of Sri Lanka. Why is that? <laughs> oh, dear, that sounds terrible. <laughs> uh, I, I suppose because... It's one of my abiding interests, the Sri Lankan psyche. It is definitely not what you imagine it to be. Everybody thinks it's India light. It's absolutely not. But it's very, very complex because there are so many layers of us and no two people are uh, at all on the same page, not even just slightly different. We're, we're sort of wildly divergent. But perhaps that's why, I don't know. Uh, and uh, you write about about that society, about this very different society, and about the, the things, I suppose, that, that, that Austin observed too, about the relationships, the marriages, the social niceties. Uh, and they're always just galloping good reads. Well, th- thank, you, thank you for that. Thank you for that. Your latest in, in particular. So your latest is called The Unmarriageable Man. It's published by Penguin. And in fact, it's your first book that's available here in Britain because you've been absolutely prolific. How many books have you actually written? Um, actually, six, Georgie. Not but then I've been writing for an awful long time, <laughs> 20 years now. So, so. <laughs> um, Tell us about this latest book. OK, well, um, after my maths degree from Oxford. I ended up as a builder in Brixton. Please don't ask me why. It's a long story. But, uh, anyway, but in fact, if people want to know, there is an interview with you in our archives on Meet the Writers that does tell that story. But anyway, carry on. Okay. Okay. So so I ended up as this, as a labourer, actually, not even a builder, nothing so glorified as a builder. But, but then that progressed to being a converter of uh, houses into flats. And I did this for eight years in London. Uh, before I cashed in my chips and came home to Sri Lanka. So so this latest book is about that life. Now, what's so special about that life? Well, A, there were no 
South Asian builders. The building game was almost all West Indian or Irish, Irish at the time, uh, certainly not in 1980. And uh, secondly, it was such a crazy time. If you're old enough like me to have lived through it, the Thatcher 80s were like, I'm not going to say amazing, but just curious. You had lots of young kids uh, in red Porsches, in stripy blazers, zooming around Brixton, uh, buying up these little little houses into, I mean, there the, were the apartments by then. Um, and every girl looked like Princess Diana. Perhaps not every boy looked like Prince Charles, but, but there you are. Uh, and this is, this is a, a love story, really, but it's also about grief. <clears throat> Yes, it's, it's a strange, uh, strange combination of things. Uh, uh, there are two stories running parallel here about what the young man escapes from in Sri Lanka. He escaped from a very uh, claustrophobic existence under a very domineering father who then dies and then he finds out that his father has misled him all along. He is indeed entitled to live in England because of his English mother uh, who disappeared at a very young age. So, so it, it shoots back and forth between the absolute gutting grief that he had at the death of his father. You see, he hated his father in life. They never got on. His father bossed him about. And then it's only after his death he realizes how much uh, actually grief and love are equal, that one turns into the other like ice to water, as he says somewhere in the book. Yeah. Uh, so you've got, you've got that story, and then you've got this crazy, silly 80s, the blue rinsed Thatcher 80s. So it oscillates between those two. It's fantastic. It's a, it's a really lovely book. Just a, a cracking read, really. Uh, Ashok, before you go, I just want to talk a little bit more about your other work in Sri Lanka because you, you, you're, you're involved with architecture now, too. Well, I, I was just a plain bog standard builder in London, converting houses. I came back here and thought, this idiot can design and build houses, and I started. And, and it's, it's kind of taken off a little bit. It's only one house every two or three years, but this last one I did called the Cricket Club Cafe has just been nominated for a Jeffrey Bauer Award, our, our big sort of architectural thing. So I have a feeling there are lots of proper architects who are mightily pissed off with me because <laughs> I'm one of the, literally the second non-architect in the history of the award who's been nominated. Well, so anyway, anyway, it's, it's kind of, you know. It's as, pretty as amazing because don't you, you, you also talk about architecture on television in Sri Lanka. Yes, yes. I, it's it's a kind of pet pet subject of mine. I lecture at the Columbus School of Architecture. God knows what on. It's, it's actually meant to be history of architecture, so I can bullshit and get away with it. Uh, <laughs> but 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 in general, um, the gene pool is very thin out here, so we all tend to end up doing lots of stuff, wearing lots of hats. But it's hugely fun. That's all. I'm, that's the most important part. I and I've got to say that your own house is one of the most beautiful houses I've ever been to in my life. So, uh... Oh, gosh. Thank you. Thank <laughs> so you. no wonder you can write beautifully. If I was sitting on your veranda with that view, I would totally do it too, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm belittling you. That's not true. It's a no, lovely no, book. not at all. Uh, <laughs> it's a lovely book. It's, it's called The Unmarriageable Man. It's by Ashok Ferry. Ashok, thanks very much for talking to us. Thank you, Georgina. Thanks to Monocle. Uh, and that's Ashok Ferry. The Unmanageable Man is published by Penguin. Monocle's April issue is all about smart ideas from smart people. Join us as we take the pulse of some of the best globally-minded thinkers. Here's what's on the agenda. In the fashion section, we speak with five game-changing brands who reveal their plans for the year ahead. 
You'll also find our usual dose of on-location reporting from Beirut to Belgium, advice for your business and dining tips to help revive those latent taste buds. Plus, our annual style directory helps you hone your style for the spring with everything from Japanese knitwear to dashing sportswear and footwear, not to mention unmissable labels from Nigeria and beyond. All that and more is there for the taking in Monaco's April issue. Order your copy today or subscribe for instant access to our digital editions. Now, London's pubs are reopening. Come Monday, we'll be able to venture into a pub garden again, sip on a drink and rejoice at what special places our local boozers are. But with over 3,500 pubs in the city, how does one choose where to go? Well, a new book, An Opinionated Guide to London Pubs, can solve that. And writer and drinker Matthew Curtis joins me for more. Matthew, welcome. Hello. Good morning. Good morning to you. Uh, Firstly, isn't it exciting we'll be able to go out again? I'm absolutely thrilled. I can't wait until Monday until I can get a pint in my hand again. (laughs) But isn't it going to be horrifically crowded everywhere? I mean, do you think you have to book to even get into a pub garden? I think, yeah, I think some people will have been wise and booked ahead. I think there will be some places, if they're sensible enough, will keep a few tables open for walk-ins. But yeah, Monday is going to be a busy day. I think people are confident and they'll be out to the pubs in droves. But don't forget they'll be open uh, for all the days after that as well. So if you need a few days to ease back into it, then I don't don't see any problem waiting. Well, now, you say in your book that 95% of the London pubs are dreadful. <laughs> um, but you tell us the ones that we should know. How do you zone in on those? Well... As a Londoner of 15 years I, I've, and someone who spends a lot of time in pubs, so my, my job is I write about beer. It's, it's a wonderful job. So I spend a lot of time in pubs and it's just a case of getting used to the ones that do great beer is obviously something I look for. But also um, I look for friendly service and some there's an intangible quality to some pubs. It, some have it and some don't. And, and the more time you spend in them, the more obvious that sort of vibe becomes. So let's just say I did a lot of research uh, <laughs> into this book and, and um, I've spent a lot of time drinking in these pubs. So some of them, um, the decisions just, just rolled off the bat. It was very easy to decide to put them in the book. But what makes a great pub? Oh, well, like I said, that I always look for a great beer selection. I always want to have a friendly welcome from the staff. The staff. It's called the hospitality industry, isn't it? So you expect excellent hospitality. Um, I think good food is really important. And some of the, the pubs in the book, um, I mean, one of them is actually a, a, the Harwood Arms is a Michelin-starred restaurant. Um, and some of them just offer great snacks. But I think great food and um, and places that are really comfy and cosy and, and feel inviting that you want to stay that you're as comfortable on your own if you want to enjoy a solo pint and a, and a nice book or with some some friends or, or you know some of the, we refer to um the fact that pubs are not just social spaces for for casual meetups Pe- people have uh, wedding receptions and funeral wakes and and all sorts of things in these places they're they're these vital social hubs mm. so i think it's that quality i refer to where you want you want to spend your your life 
important parts of your life in them. That's really key. So um, the pubs we've highlighted in the book, I mean, there's 52. It was an immensely difficult decision uh, getting that shortlist down, but they're all very special. And I think if you if you uh, pick up a book, the book and uh, head into some, you'll you'll soon realise why they've been chosen. Yeah, one for for every week of the year. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, right. I got some specific questions now. Uh, best pub to take your dog? Oh well, I think I think if any of the the pubs in here, except maybe the one I mentioned, the Harwood Arms, which is a Michelin star restaurant, um, I think. Given the fact that most people have been, uh, well, I don't know if you've seen the news, but a lot of people have uh, got dogs during lockdown because they've been at home. Um, I would say that almost uh, all of them should be dog friendly. But just a few I would recommend. Um, the Cock Tavern in Hackney uh, would definitely be dog friendly, as would uh, its sister pub, the Southampton Arms in Gospel Oak. Um I think somewhere like the Wenlock Arms in Islington would uh, be very dog-friendly as well, as would the Cheshire Arms uh, also in Hackney because it's got a beautiful big beer garden, so plenty of room for dogs there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in terms of of live music, a a lot of pubs are doing that now. Where are are the best gigs to be found? Well, um, in... Nunhead in South London, there is a fantastic community-owned pub, the the first community-owned pub called the Ivy House, which has a stage that'll do some uh, local folk music, and it it even does rock and roll karaoke, so there's a band (laughs) that will accompany you as you sing. I don't think that'll be happening for a little while, but hopefully it comes back soon. Um, If you want to go somewhere, excuse me, really um, like old school, East End, the Palm Tree, they get live bands in at the weekend, um, and it's absolutely brilliant. And there's a great Irish pub called Mackinson's, and that will have some uh, traditional Irish folk music at the weekends. Now, I can't guarantee that as we go back uh, to the beer gardens, there'll be a lot of live music because of the restrictions. But uh, that, that I think uh, hopefully from May, May the 17th, when they open inside, we should see a bit more of that. Mm. Uh, and finally, Matthew, how have pubs coped I mean, during this time, and have many of them gone to the wall? Well, yeah, I think I think we've lost uh, quite quite a few. I mean, there's there's over uh, forty thousand pubs in the UK, but it's it's been a, a difficult time for them. Um, they haven't had a lot of support, so I think that's why it's really important to get back to these spaces as as soon as you feel safe to do so. And remember that uh, a lot of these staff will have been furloughed um, for a long time, and so they're getting used to it too. So um, be courteous, be polite, and and tip because uh, that'll that'll go a long way. It'll put a smile on someone's face. Absolutely, Matthew. Thank you very much indeed. An opinionated guide to London pubs by Matthew Curtis is part of a growing series of opinionated pocket guides to London. London, published by Hoxton Mini Press. And that's all we have time for on this show, which was produced by Marcus Hippie and our studio engineer was Nora Hull. I'm Georgina Godwin, and of course, this programme returns at the same time next week. I'm with you yet for a few more hours today, though, so thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.